I would never extort anybody. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I mean, it would be, I would feel miserable doing it. Yeah. Not for the guilty conscience. A man with a conscience can't extort. That's what I always say. Could you imagine going into a barbershop and being like, give me a thousand dollars or I'll, you know, wait, do you know what extortion is? Yeah. That's, that's extorting. You go in, you go into a store, but they pay you and you don't pay them. That's <laughs> it's extortion. the inverse of shopping. Yeah, ex- it's anti-shopping. Ex-storing. Yeah, it's, it's anti-shopping. You go in there and you're like, listen, I love these fruits. I love these melons. Why don't you give them to me? Actually, no. Actually, I don't even want your products or your wares. Give me your money but- or I'm going to kill you. This is just stealing. Well, no, and also well, attempted murder. The difference between robbery and extortion is the extortion, you tell them you're just going to do it like later and they have to do it. It's like there's a, like a regularity to it. It's like if you rob the sto- same store every week. They got to start buying you more books. Brace. Brosos. What's the second part? What did you Brosos. say? Brosos. What's that? I don't know. I'm just coming up with near new names. Yeah. Brace uh, or there was a comma there. Brosos. Brosos. Maybe Bracinta. But I feel like that's a diminutive. Please. That's the reason I can never learn to speak Spanish. Because if someone ever called me a fucking diminutive, I would lose my, lose my shit. Why? They're so because cute. I'm 5'4". And while that is the global <laughs> average for height. You know what I've noticed lately? Mm. Women don't like when you insist something is actually the global average. <laughs> Why? Here's my thing. They really don't like that. If yeah. a man knows what the global average is. It's telling you enough already. Okay. The global average of cigarettes is Marlboro Lights. It's the most smoked cigarette in the world. The global average uh, beverage is water. It's the most drank water in the world. The global average for height is five, three guys who say they're five, four. What do you got? It's like written on your desk or something? uh, Close. Same type of thing. Uh, I I have a tattoo to my leg. I have a list of global averages for when this comes up. Uh, I can Hello, pull. everyone. Hi, my name is Tyler Durden. <laughs> I'm Liz. We are, as always, joined by producer Young Chomsky. The podcast you are listening to, in case you forgot and don't have it tattooed on your leg, mm-hmm. is True Anon. Hello, everyone. Hello. I don't have any leg tattoos. Yeah, I'm not. A, that's not my. I'm no. not a big fan of that placement. Yeah, it's. As I feel like a big one is you get go. the misfit skull. On the back of your leg, I always Popular. see that one. People, yeah, on the shin, or no, excuse yeah. me, on the on the calf. Noise, shin. Uh, my buddy saw. Uh, that would hurt so much. A shin tattoo. A shin. Uh, well, okay, yeah. Why would you get a shin's tattoo? That's so lame. <laughs> uh, I, I apparently the drummer for uh, the Misfits, current drummer for the Misfits, former drummer for Black Flag Robo, is. Uh, you can see what I'm putting up here. Monster. Mm. Uh, above monster. the global average, mm, uh, way above the global average. Mm. Also, might have been. And now that I say that, he might have been in a death squad or something, Robo, or maybe he was in a good kind of 
thing? It was What's like the, the opposite rumor? of a death squad. A uh, life squad where you go around <laughs> resuscitating people. Like you and your boys go to restaurants with really hard to eat food and you give CPR to people. <gasps> that happened to me once when I was a kid. Someone gave you CPR? My dad. Oh, I almost so choked sweet. on. We actually ta- I was actually talking about this the other night. Uh, yeah, I was in the middle of uh, of eating a piece of steak that was too big for little Liz. Aww. And I started to turn blue and my dad had to give me the Heimlich. It was what? very scary. I was like, like, like actually literally joking. Did he, did it fuck up your ribs? Like, did it, I mean, it hurt. No, right? no. I think because I was so small. I don't know. You're, you would still like your right baby under ribs. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They hadn't, they hadn't, the new ones hadn't grown in yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a, you remember when we first started, everyone was always like, they're on Coke. Yeah. For some reason, think people think podcasters are on coke. Why would I do cocaine and do this? First no, of all, both of us, no, that's a bourgeois, decadent excess that we do not, I do not approve of. Yeah. Plus, I don't do cocaine. I just like the way it smells. No, I actually don't <laughs> do cocaine because I it 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 really affected uh, my life and my relationships with people around me. Uh, plus, it made me too cool. But this is, uh, you might, whenever you're you're doing it and listening to it, I don't know what you people think people do cocaine during. But uh turns out it's Why actually. Why would you do that and then do a podcast? Like, I think of all things to you do imagine? when you're on coke, it would be like not podcasting. I think people are <laughs> like, do you well, like, people- want to go to the discotheque? Yeah. Well, all right. So whenever I, well, first of all, I, it's been a quite a while, but when I would do coke in a social context, I would usually just have to immediately go to the bathroom. Like to evacuate myself because it's like mostly who knows it's just chemicals in there. Uh, but yeah, it's not like you go and like this is we're gonna talk about. The, I mean, you talk, but you don't talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, Jesus Christ! Um, no, we're on ketamine. <laughs> oh, that's a different book. It's the it's the ketamine is the only. Uh, <laughs> Ketamine, no, keep it in. Ketamine is the only ethically sourced drug because it's mostly diverted from veterinarians' labs, and you shouldn't be giving uh, animals uh, drugs because it's fucked up to do that. This is an episode on the animal drug war. Yes, no, this is an episode on the regular drug war. Yeah, Uh, and uh, and so if you were listening to this and on cocaine, first of all, there's something really wrong with you. Yeah, go do something better. Please. Go out to the discotheque. Go apologize for not being able to get a boner and being like, it's, uh, 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 say, talk like that a bunch, or yeah, or or barf. Um, but uh, but this is about where it comes from. Well, about who gives it to you. So, uh, do you want to, uh, in the words of uh, some brave heroes in American history, let's roll. Buenos tardes, assholes. Uh, welcome to another uh, another little Truanon here. We have with us today returning guest, Seth Harp. I don't know why I took such a deep breath there before I said that. It's only it's not even a very long name. An investigative reporter at Rolling Stone here to talk with us about. I mean, you'll hear what the fucking interview is about. If you made it this far, you're you're going to listen to the whole thing. But uh, in short, about the about the Civil War in Mexico. About Los Zetas, about uh, the the uh, ultra violence in the country, and a little bit about the Mexican deep state. Uh, Seth, it is a pleasure to have you back. 
Thanks for having me. Hey, Brace. Hey, Liz. How y'all doing? Hey, how's it going? Good. Thank y'all. Um, uh, yeah. So last time we talked to you, we talked about JSOC. You know, you're reporting on the the murders connected uh, connected to the base that they're in, and uh, and the violence associated with these guys, both in the country and out of the country. And uh, and this time we're talking about Los Zetas, and people might think that those are pretty two disparate things uh, uh, there, but. They are, they're in fact a lot more connected, I believe, than is commonly understood. Yeah, definitely. You can draw a straight line from the sort of special operations complex that's centered on, on Fort Bragg. Um, that's not just JSOC, but uh, Delta Force, uh, USASOC, uh, uh, the Green Berets, uh, and the emergence of Los Zetas right around the year uh, 2000 in Mexico. Um, and it's an example of a pattern that you see more generally, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind the original purpose of the Green Berets and their invented uh, um, during the Vietnam War was to train the indigenous, that's to use the military terminology in this, in this context, indigenous security forces um, of foreign countries to carry out U.S. objectives. Uh, and they have done this um, in many different countries, countless countries from, from Vietnam all the way up you know, to the last days of the war in Af- Afghanistan. Um, and in Mexico, there's a particularly... Um, I, I think a particularly a notable example of this uh, and the tendency of these units to, to go rogue uh, and to spread terrorism. So like we just mentioned, uh, Los Zetas is kind of the focal point of this episode and of what we're talking about here. And they are, uh, you know, as, as you just said there, a lot of them come from ex-military backgrounds and in fact started as defectors. So why, why are we talking about Los Zetas here? Like why, why are they sort of the, the, the crux of really this conversation about the civil war in Mexico and the, and the, the narco violence there. Okay. Well, by way of background, I'll just say, um, so the drug war in Mexico, current body count is somewhere around 300,000 dead, uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, that makes it the most violent, uh, most deadly conflict, uh, of the 21st century, other than the civil war in Syria. Uh, and I believe also, um, events in the Congo. Um, so how did it get this bad? Uh, well, the standard narrative, if you look at, um, you know, like a Vice documentary or, or an Al Jazeera documentary or read something in The Intercept or any other sort of relatively sophisticated take on the drug war in Mexico, uh, you'll hear or you'll read that um, the proximate cause was, was the decision by former President Felipe Calderon in 2006 to deploy the Mexican military around the country to fight the drug cartels in the streets. Um, and there's some truth to that. You know, Felipe Calderon deserves, deserves a lot of criticism. He was a terrible president. Um, there's also a lot of criticism, uh, a lot of blame to be laid at the feet of the Bush administration, George W. Bush mm-hmm. administration, uh, which encouraged this move by Mexico and also gave them the weapons by which to do it under the Merida Initiative in 2008. Um, however, I would argue that militarization of the conflict in Mexico was, was already inevitable by, let's say, 2004 or so, or in other words, that any Mexican president would have eventually resorted uh, to military force to combat the drug cartels because already by that time they've become, become such a clear threat to the very sovereignty of Mexico, uh, an existential threat to the government of Mexico itself. Uh, and I think that was for two uh, main factors. And the first, first of them, which I won't uh, dwell on too long here, but which there's been some news about uh, lately, it was the lifting of the assault weapons ban in the United States in 2004. Absolute game changer as far as uh, the cartels war go. Um, you know, for 10 years, assault weapons in the U.S. have been banned. Bush administration lifted that ban. All of a sudden, um, 
there is unlimited access to assault weapons and also semi-automatic pistols, Glock six hours, which are, um, I would say just as deadly, if not in some cases more deadly than assault weapons. Um, and the fact that you have suddenly a black market here in Texas, because, you know, um, as, as porous as the border is moving drugs North, it's much more porous going South. Mm. It's very easy. You could even say trivial, uh, for these organizations to smuggle, um, guns, uh, and ammunition crucially, uh, also very important. Obviously you can't use guns without ammunition to move that stuff South. Um, and with the amount of money that they have to bring, uh, to the table, you know, making tens of billions of dollars from the drug trade. This allows them to literally outgun the Mexican police, literally outgun the Mexican army uh, and Marine Corps. And so already you have um, this massive threat that's going to have to be combated in some way. Now, like I said, I won't dwell too much on, on that subject, but uh, if folks want to learn more, uh, check out a piece I wrote called Arming the Cartels uh, in the September 2019 issue of Rolling Stone. And also check out uh, recent news that the government of Mexico has sued mm -hmm. weapons yeah. manufacturers in the United States uh, just this week over all these issues and the, the role of the weapons industry in the U.S. in creating the homicide crisis in, in Mexico. Yeah, I, I was I was shocked when I, I first went to Mexico as an adult that like or the only time I've been to Mexico as an adult is that like. All I did was, I think, just show my passport. No, nothing. It would mean I, it's compared to crossing the fascist Canadian border. I mean, it's like I, you really could be bringing anything in. Uh, and it's funny because my dad actually got stopped there in the seventies and searched by Mexican uh, police, having brought in mushrooms to the country by accident in a in a suit jacket. <laughs> although they just let him go. But uh, I mean, it was yeah, it's astounding. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it happens all the time. Uh, it's constantly taking place. And, um, you know, the, the, in the U S there's almost no way for federal, it's not, it's not that they don't care. It's that federal law enforcement agencies are constrained by, uh, the statutes, like the criminal statutes that they have to, to go by. And there's extremely robust statutes for drug trafficking uh, that allow them all sorts of leeway, give them all sorts of investigative powers and so forth. Um, but there's no federal law against, against arms trafficking. And so you find that these, these um, uh, police agencies are literally unable to do anything in a lot of cases where they know who's running guns, and, uh, uh, but, they, but they're powerless to, to put a stop to it. But like I said, um, that's a, a different topic that, you know, the, I mentioned there were probably two factors that made militarization of the conflict in Mexico inevitable by 2004. And the second uh, was the emergence of Los Zetas uh, mm -hmm. around, around the year 2000. Um, and Los Zetas were a new model of cartel, whereas in the past you had had like old school drug smuggling syndicates, uh, kind of in the mold of the Italian mafia. Um, they were relatively content. Uh, they were very violent uh, in eliminating competition, but were relatively content to just sort of smuggle drugs on the down low. Um, whereas when Los Zetas emerged, uh, drawing on their military background, they were much more focused on just actually seizing control of territory and just completely taking over large swaths of the country um, and not only taxing all the drug smuggling activity that was, that was taking place there, but, but taxing, levying a, an illegal tax called the derecho de piso on every form of business, whether legal or illegal. Um, and uh, their emergence uh, was massively traumatic uh, to the Mexican people, um, led to an extreme crisis uh, in Mexico uh, and, um, that continues to the present day. And, um, so if you'd like me to, to continue, I can say a little bit more about the, um, about the Mexican army unit that gave rise 
to Los Cetas, which is known as, as GAFE. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that you, you mentioned their military background, and I think we should, you know, we should be specific here that they have a direct military background that's linked to, to our paramilitary organizations that, you know, the militarization of the cartels, I think still, you know, people who aren't familiar with the, um, you know, changes in the developments in the drug wars really maybe still have an image in their head of the kind of like mafia model that you've spoke about, you know, like that there's a kind of like, you know, that it hadn't been completely and totally paramilitarized, but it has. I mean, it's a, it's a really, it's like a total, there was a total, um, you know, evolution, a total change there. And it's a direct outgrowth of actually us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I was trying to think before the show of how I would define those setas, and I would describe them as a, a narco-terrorist criminal militia that's engaged in a non-ideological civil war uh, with the Mexican state and with other um, with other criminal factions for control, not just of drug trafficking routes, but control over natural resources uh, and transportation infrastructure. And I would also describe them as a, uh, a paramilitary auxiliary of the Mexican state governments of Tamaulipas and Nuevo Leon, um, which, which adds to my sense of, of the conflict as a, as a sort of non-ideological civil war. Mm. Um, but with regard to the connection to the U.S., it's often said that Los Cetas were trained at Fort Bragg, which is what we were talking about last time. Um, and there is some truth to this rumor, enough that the State Department investigated. And we, we know what the what their report was because it um, emerged through WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. And they found that, in fact, uh, that GAFE, the original unit, GAFE stands for Grupo Aeromovil de Fuerzas Especiales. Um, that is the uh, Airborne Special Forces Group. And this unit was uh, trained at Fort Bragg, like I said before, by, by the Green Berets, uh, by this, com- this special operations complex in North Carolina. And, uh, but the State Department found they could only identify one of the original Zetas who had definitely been at Fort Bragg and had definitely received this training. There may have been others. That's really beside the point. There's no doubt that GAFE uh, was one of these type of units that we're describing of a foreign country that the U.S. wants to exert um, military and political control over and to do so kind of seeds or spins up, however you want to describe it, uh, a special forces unit that's that's in its own image. Uh, uh, and like I said before, they've done this in countless countries. These units are intended to be either anti-communist or anti-drug trafficking or anti-terrorism. Um, but they have a uh, many of these units have become have uh, later gone on to commit uh, grave atrocities. Uh, and with respect to Los Cetas, they would they would um, later become known after they deserted from the Mexican military. Uh, they would become known uh, for sort of signatures of of special operations or let's say irregular warfare um, of the sort that's taught at Fort Bragg, which is uh, use of surveillance, intelligence gathering, uh, use of disguises, um, elaborate ambushes. Uh, well-planned assassinations um, and that kind of thing. They're not just Rambos. Um, and they also distinctive, are distinctively known for the use of uh, displays of gore uh, mm-hmm. and displays of mutilated bodies, which is a psychological operations warfare tactic to soften up uh, resistance in advance uh, of, of, a, of a military movement um, by terrorizing the people. And that's why I'm not using the, the word terrorist in reference to this group as an empty uh, vituperative what they what they do really is terrorism although it's of a non of a non uh, ideological sort yeah i mean that's 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 something that you and i were talking about the other day is that th- that 
the the similarities between ISIS and, uh, for example, and 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 Zetas and and uh, the the particular sort of violence that that we're talking about here, like okay, it has its uses in that you're like you're killing people and that you're scaring people sort of by word of mouth and the community like oh you know they might come here and do this, but like by actually putting these videos in the internet too is is you're not only projecting this this image into you know every community that can see it i mean potentially the whole world anybody you can click on these videos but you're also sort of raising this flag and like this is what we do we raise the mm-hmm. we raise the bar and meet meet any sort of resistance with just a a uh, I, there's a term for overwhelming force you know and yeah. and, uh, and that i mean you know we don't uh, i mean talking about it in too too detail is basically just like you know gore porn or whatever but i mean I think a lot of people are somewhat familiar, at least with the kind of just like insane acts of violence, for lack of a better word, that are, you know, people uh, without describing, but, you know, like, you know, being dismembered, being boiled alive, that kind of shit Um, and videotaped. And uh, that, uh, you know, you you mentioned to me when we were talking the other day, Seth, that uh, that the first Zeta's beheading video came out. Shortly after the first uh, the, or the Daniel Pearl ISIS video, mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, there's definitely a kind of discourse. Yeah, Daniel Pearl and also Nick Berg, and there, yeah. there there's also um, uh, like not, we were not talking ISIS. Excuse me, Al Qaeda. Well, if that's how it was Al Qaeda in Iraq, which later became yeah. ISIS, the same shit, same guys. Um, and I think that you can definitely say that Los Zetas emerge in a kind of discourse with these groups, and um, in addition to you know, to the, to the, to the snuff films that they do, um, in which you'll have the captors that, uh, the captives, um, bound and kneeling before the camera, usually with a kind of black flag flag in the background, the use of the, the color black, the use of like black uniforms, black ski masks, all of that, I think arises in a kind of discourse with events that in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan around this time period. Uh, and it's just another way in which we can see, um, that this crisis in Mexico was um, seeded by by U.S. militarism. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the Zetas, uh, you know, top enforcers and torturers, too, claimed at least uh, that they were also trained by the Israeli government as well and can counterterrorism stuff. And I think that's like that's where a lot of this stuff gets in my head is that like you know this is all like all of these groups essentially like every every single special forces group operating in South and Central America, most special forces groups in the world have as their ostensible mission counter terror. Uh, and then of course, you know, if they go rogue or even in the sense of their general mission, often inflict just like untold amounts of terror on people. Absolutely. Um, and if you like, I can talk about, you know, the, the process by which GAFE, uh, becomes Los Zetas in the, in the late 1990s. Um, because their first mission, actually, it's interesting the show you guys did the other day with the with the No Olympics folks. Um, just uh, kind of a side note: Gaffey was actually spun up uh, to protect the World Cup in 1996 in Mexico. Mm. So interesting little parallel there. That's mm-hmm. that is very interesting. Um, we we spoke in that show about the way the Olympics kind of uses the state of exception very exactly. very well, and so for that to emerge and then kind of spin out is. Totally. Yeah. It, it's all mm-hmm. consistent. Um, so, but their first really big operation is the suppression of the Zapatistas in Chiapas in 1994 after they rose up in opposition um, to NAFTA. There's not a lot of great reporting around that, um, but we do know that some of the insurgents, some of the indigenous land defenders uh, turned up afterwards with uh, facial mutilations, mm-hmm. ears and noses cut off. 
And this is going to become a signature of something that's associated, not just with Losetas, but you can just trace it, um, you know, all the way back to Vietnam. And, I was about and, to say necklace of ears kind of shit. Exactly. Um, so, but in any event, the GAFE are the most elite soldiers in the Mexican armed forces. And in the late 1990s, um, a, a guy named Osiel Cardenas Guillen, who's boss of the Gulf Cartel, I really wish we had more time to talk about the Gulf Cartel. It's a fascinating subject in its own right. It's the progenitor of Los Zetas. Mm-hmm. Um, but folks, they're, they're, they're because for some reason, there's a lot more attention paid to uh, the Sinaloa Cartel or the Guadalajara mm-hmm. Cartel. Yeah. Uh, somehow the Gulf Cartel manages to fly under the radar, but it's like the, it's the original uh, Mexican cartel. Um, it's in, uh, it's in, based in Matamoros and also in Reynosa at the very Southern tip of Texas. Um, not the sort of desert, uh, tumbleweed borderland with barbed wire and so forth that exists, uh, in the Northern imagination centered around El Paso, uh, and Juarez. Uh, it's, it's way down in the, in the subtropical zone of Texas, citrus zone of Texas. It's really muggy, hot area where the, where the Gulf or where the, uh, Rio Grande discharges into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they've been there forever. And in the late nineties, uh, Cardenas Guillen was the, was the top drug Lord in Mexico. And he's looking around, you know, he's asking himself, who are the baddest dudes, uh, that I can hire to have on my payroll who can be my personal bodyguards and also my personal enforcers. And he, and, and, uh, you know, in a rather audacious stroke decides he's going to take his money, which important to note here that drug cartels have much more money to spend than the Mexican federal government. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think it's safe to say 10 times as much money to spend uh, as the entire military budget of Mexico. Um, in addition to what I was saying before about having access to superior weapons. Um, so he, he asked himself, who are the baddest guys? And he just decides I'm going to make an offer to, to this unit, to this whole unit, the, the, the GAFE, uh, the airborne special forces group, and about 30 of them or more than 30 of them desert the military and go to work, uh, at presumably a much higher, uh, salary mm-hmm. working for Cardenas Guillen. Um, he falls in, I believe, 2003 after he makes the mistake of, um, of uh, holding a couple of DEA agents at gunpoint in Matamoros. Um, they, <laughs> yeah. Well, the DEA agents apparently had an informant in the backseat um, and uh, Cardenas wanted them to, to give him up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a standoff and the DEA didn't, didn't forgive that. They were very pissed about that. And then thereafter spared no expense in putting this guy behind bars. So he's now sitting in, uh, I believe, ADX Florence, um, you know, between uh, 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 Zacharias Musawi uh, and the Unabomber. But, um, so in his absence, Los Zetas start to, to feel themselves more and more, um, in control of, uh, the organized crime world in the Valley and starting to realize that, you know, they don't really have any need to take orders from anyone since they can basically, uh, take out any, any competitors. Um, and then, then in 2004, the assault weapons ban is lifted in the United States. And at that point, they have not only their military training and background, but unlimited amounts of weapons mm-hmm. and ammunition. And at that point, they begin to sp- spread rapidly all over Mexico. They split off from the Gulf Cartel. They go to war with the Gulf Cartel, a war which continues to the present. Um, and they spread not only through Tamaulipas and Nuevo León, but also through uh, Coahuila, uh, Chihuahua, uh, down into Veracruz, uh, also into uh, Guanajuato, Puebla, uh, Hidalgo, uh, down into Guatemala, um, and they're able to do this um, through, as I was saying before, you know, it's not just that they're rampaging over the country. Uh, before they move into, into enemy territory, 
They're mm-hmm. using intelligence gathering surveillance. They're spending, sending in actual spies um, to figure out who is in, who are in control of the who is in control of the various uh, organized crime factions in that area, identify them, uh, and then plan operations which are then carried out with a relatively high degree of discipline uh, to simply kill all those people uh, and force their workers to, to, to work for them. Um, and I don't know if we have time for it, but I actually interviewed a former GAFE, yeah. um, a commando in, uh, in Puebla in 2018. Former um, as in he's now, uh, he's retired or he's, he's got he, a new boss. He, he's retired. <laughs> he's retired. He never joined Los Zetas, but he knew the original Zetas and um, could talk about their personalities and so forth. Um, he didn't desert. Not all of Gaffey deserted. I don't even yeah. know if half of them deserted. Um, but he stayed in the military and later did anti-Zeta missions in the in the Sierra Madre uh, region of Veracruz, uh, which is which is Zeta's territory that um, was totally denied to the security forces of Mexico. And I'll relate this because it kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. He was doing a mission. So this guy's not from Puebla. I agreed to set, to. To, to not say where he lives. Of course, yeah. we met We met in Puebla and he told me about some missions he had done around 2010 uh, in connection with a story I was researching about Los Zetas' entry into the business of stealing oil and gas from the mm. Mexican state on a massive yeah. industrial scale, um, which is something that they earn uh, nearly as much as they do from drug trafficking, from stealing uh, uh, oil and gas. The international uh, black market for oil and gas is a huge black market. Um, so they're sending out actual tanker ships full of oil and gas to foreign countries and selling it, making billions of dollars from this activity. Um, and so, and so this former GAFE was on an anti-Zeta mission to the Sierra Madre to, um, to keep an eye on this type of activity. And so it was, a, it was the type of uh, mission where they didn't carry guns. They got together everyone in the unit who were native Jarochos, that's people from Veracruz who can speak uh, that accent um, and who won't stick out. And they all dressed in like muddy clothes and had like a muddy a beat up pickup truck uh, with the bed filled up with vegetables. And they drove around from town to town, passing themselves off as vegetable sellers. And the whole time they're drawing maps uh, of, uh, of the little areas, observing what the, the Zetas are doing, where they're store, storing the oil and gas. Um, and uh, also taking photos with a camera that's hidden in the body of the truck. And so I relate this to, to really emphasize again, like the degree to which this uh, unit or this uh, criminal organization, this criminal militia, Los Zetas, um, is, uh, is empowered to take over the whole Mexican underworld through their training in these type of tactics, which, you know, they fetishize it to some degree, but it also makes them, uh, it also makes them very effective. Yeah. I, so I have a question. I have a kind of a broad strokes question because at the beginning of this brace referred to this as like the Mexican civil war, which I think is very interesting. Not, you know, not everyone calls it that, or even if they hear that we're talking about the cartels, they wouldn't, you know, immediately say, you know, there's sort of a, you know, for people unfamiliar with what's going on and and the history there, there's, you know, maybe they compare it to like, like we mentioned, like drug wars or cartel wars through the eighties and in the early nineties before kind of the, you know, this kind of shifted into cocaine cowboys. Yeah. into something much, much larger. I mean, you wrote a piece, you know, we're going to, you've written a, a couple of pieces that we'll link to in the notes. Um, but you mentioned the piece you wrote about the cartels moving into stealing the oil and, you know, and, and kind of like gaining control over that. So they've got control over mass natural resources. They've got a mass supply of, of weapons and, you know, a total like, uh, you know, 
copyright on a lot of the violence in the country. Um, They've got billions and billions of dollars. And usually when we talk about a civil war, what we're talking about is like control over sovereignty, right? Of a nation, but they're also non-ideological. And so it's kind of spun out of this thing that it's like, it's not a gang war. It's not exactly stateless, but it's not exactly a state. Like, what is this that we're looking at? I guess that's why I'm so interested in the comparisons with ISIS Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little hokey, but at the same time, there is something there about the nature of this kind of like non-ideological sort of, you know, ISIS to some degree, uh, terror, narco, ANCAP state blob thing that's mm-hmm. like not mm-hmm. quite a state. It's not above states. It's not below. I don't know. Do you know what I'm getting at? Like, I, I'm trying to get a shape of this thing and it's difficult because, it, it's so unique and so much bigger than I think we we have any kind of like um, you know sense of sense of in history. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so early, it can be very hard for um, for Americans or for any outsiders to wrap their head around. Um, and earlier, I I, uh, I uh, tried to define Losetas as in some respects a paramilitary auxiliary of the mm-hmm. state government of Tamaulipas and, and also Nuevo León. Those are the two states on the border on the South side of Texas. Mm-hmm. And um, so the governor of a state like Tamaulipas, it's not that he's corrupt. It's that he is the cartel. Um, mm-hmm. And so are a number of, well, put it this way. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to talk about Eribardo Lascano, who is the, mm-hmm. who's the most significant boss in Los Cetas. Mm-hmm. And, or just anyone, you can imagine any Mexican drug lord that you have in mind. Um, that guy is, not the true head of the cartel. He's actually the, what could best be described as like the chief of security for the cartel. So these are the guys who rise uh, from the streets and who die in the streets or are imprisoned. Uh, they're the ones who rise and fall, who get taken out. They're the head of like the core of Sicarios, uh, this in charge mm. of holding down security. Um, and they're also the ones that we see represented in the media. But behind those bosses, there's something that you can conceive of as like a board of directors. Uh, mm-hmm. And these are guys who are wearing suits, who are in skyscrapers, who are untouchable. And they're the ones who provide the money for uh, to purchase drug shipments and also that launder the proceeds. Because a guy like Eriberto Lascano, who I'll talk about in a second, you know, he probably doesn't even have a bank account. What the fuck is he going to do with like $5 billion? Let's yeah. say that. You, there's just nothing he can do with it. Um, and so the real cartel or the board of directors of the cartel is the governor, the, the top uh, police officials. Uh, at the top generals, uh, yeah. bankers, uh, lawyers, other investors. And you have these inscrutable political factions uh, that are behind the cartel and that are allied with state governments in Mexico's federal system. And they're at war with other similar agglomerations of interests and also at war with the Mexican uh, uh, central government, which itself is corrupted with its own paramilitary auxiliaries uh, in the form of other cartels, which will, will try to create like a top cartel in any given time, notably the Sinaloa cartel, very likely had a lot of sponsorship in the in the uh, in the Mexican federal government uh, during its heyday. Um, but the result of it is, as you say, a kind of non-ideological civil war where the only thing that they're trying to do is seize, or the only trying thing they're trying to do is make money. Uh, mm-hmm. That's it. And yeah, no, yeah, I mean that's what that's what that's what is so sort of jarring about this conflict is that it's really like an end of history sort of types of civil war. I, totally. I mean, that's, you know, in the, you know, totally. you guys know how I mean that, yeah. but like, you know, if, if this had taken place in any other decade, right, there would be 
absolutely ideological factors going into this. And mm-hmm. obviously there's ideological factors going into this, but I'm using the shorthand like, you know, there's no there's no one on either side fighting for capitalism or for right. communism or any of the, you know, the great clash of ideas or anything like that. Like that clash is over. In, in Or in, even in the like mafia respect where it was about family or it was patrimonial or it had this sort of, it's completely, I mean, yeah. even in Brazil where this is, I mean, the gangs in Brazil with Bolsonaro's kids, even though there's that kind of like lineage, there is absolutely none of that kind of old style. And it is, I mean, it's really similar, strikingly similar too, with the way it kind of bleeds into I the would government say and backers. E- even more in Mexico, because you know, in, in in Brazil, you know, you have them killing like left wing politicians occasionally and stuff like that. And I mean, that's not necessarily because they're left wing; it's because they are a rival politician. I mean, I'm sure they would they would do it to anybody. But in Mexico, it's like it, 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 there there is there is. I mean, there's not even a, a point to winning it exactly. Like they're no. not trying yeah. to take over the state. They're not trying to, you know, overthrow the central government. And and it comes out, you know, of this lineage, right? Of like, you know, School of the Americas, uh, you mm-hmm. know, starting in in Panama, and then then well, it wasn't called that then, but then moving moving to the U.S. and training all of these, you know, death squads, including a large proportion of which were, were members of the Mexican military, mm-hmm. to massacres conducted by the Mexican military, specifically, you know, speaking of the Olympics, '68 Olympics. Uh, you know, and, 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 and these, these death squads in these other countries often becoming, whether if they're not in the state, eventually becoming the state and being part of that or becoming criminal gangs in opposition to the state, you know, in, in, in places where the, uh, the right wing opposition might've lost or destabilizing a government to where a country is super underdeveloped and there is room for these places, you know, uh, large criminal organizations to grow. And then of course you have drugs, which are, you know, Obviously, the rise of cocaine and heroin in the seventies and eighties, and then especially the, uh, let's say, p- possibly some federal government intervention there uh, <laughs> in terms of mm. crack cocaine, which I got to say they did knock it out of the park on that one. But uh-huh. uh, it is, uh, it, you know, and and then that you know beat flooding flooding inner cities in the U.S., especially black communities, which is you know where it was targeted. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things like added up, and then the ideological conflict that like fueled all of this ended. And yeah. like like you mentioned earlier, the 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 Gaffe guys, uh, you know, killing, you know, mutilating these these peasants during the '94 uh, Zapatista uprising, same year as NAFTA going into effect. Like, uh, you know, that is that is like almost no coincidence because that is like a such a clear demarcation line. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, definitely. Um, with regard to the reference you're just making to, you know, the, the dark alliance thing and the and the true roots of the the mm-hmm. original roots of the Mexican cartel system, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, um, I doubt we have time to go into it now. But yeah, definitely one day let's talk about um, the story of uh, Caro Quintero, uh, Kiki Camarena, uh, yep. Manuel Buendia, and Gary Webb, all of which could be neatly mm-hmm. summarized yeah. uh, by the title of uh, Buendia's book, La CIA in Mexico, uh, the CIA in Mexico, uh, which he published shortly before he was uh, mysteriously killed by unknown uh, assailants. Um, but with regard to the um, non-ideological aspect of it, yes, there's not a wit of ideology around any of this. If there ever was, um, then it's gone now. And that kind of makes it uh, extra terrifying, in my view, the fact that there is no end game, um, and that you have a kind of like, I don't know if you want to call it, just like sort of super libertarian or just uh, yeah. criminal capitalistic um, sort of post-historical, um, apocalyptic, dystopian um, outcome with these groups fighting uh, over, fighting each other for no for no political purpose. 
Um, and narco capitalism. That's what it is. <laughs> there you go. And when you drive through these places, you know, the, the last time I'll, I'll refer constantly to Nuevo Laredo in the, in yeah. the context of Los Setas. And the last time I drove through there in November of this year, of last year, man, you know, so on the highways, I mentioned this to you guys before the show on the highways, that, which are still controlled by the federal government. Um, the, all you see are factories, maquilladores, and just stank ass pollution. You can smell it. Um, it's absolutely horrible. Um, nature has been destroyed. Civilization has been destroyed in these places uh, that were once very beautiful. Um, and that, you know, that I, I first developed a, a, an affection for and a familiarity with, you know, in the late 1990s as a kid driving around Northern Mexico with my parents back when it was a completely different world, uh, back when these little towns were kind of like a preserved remnant of old Mexico. Uh, when, you know, as a suburban kid from Texas, you know, you could see things like, you know, street markets and like, you know, horses clopping around on cobblestones and like plazas full of life and so forth, mariachi bands. And, you know, to me as a kid and everyone outside the country before, it was fucking cool, man. It was, it was great. Um, and it's all totally gone now. It's destroyed. Outside of the big cities, the rural areas are where it's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. These zones, uh, the security situation there, it's like Yemen or Somalia. Um, you can't enter. There are checkpoints. Um, the, the Mexican military can't enter. Um, and you have these little bandit towns where it's just like, you know, history really has come, come to an end um, in these places. If you'd like, I can talk uh, a little bit more about the um, about Heriberto Lascano, uh, the yeah. first really big boss in Los Cetas and, and the most significant figure, uh, I would I would say in its history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get into it. Uh, so he he's ex Gafe. He's a highly trained soldier. He per, he participated in, in the suppression of of the EZLN uh, in Chiapas, um, and he topped every drug lord who had ever become before him in, in sadism. Check out pictures of this guy online, Heriberto Lascano Lascano. By the way, reason he has two last names uh, for folks who are not familiar with uh, the Spanish language or, or Hispanic culture, um, the two last names that are the same is because it, in, in Spanish language, you take the name of your father and your mother's side. And in this case, I assume his father and mother were not related, both named Lascano. Um, for anyone that's curious about that. Anyway, um, so he's an unprecedented monster in the Mexican underworld. I'm not really not going to go into to, to the details of some of his um, reputed practices um, because I don't want to uh, carry water for um, yeah. for their sort of the terrorism of gore that Los Cetas would become notorious for. Um, but notably, there are the first and second San Fernando massacres of 2010 and 2011. Mm. Um, where uh, Los Cetas killed hundreds of people at a time through a sort of um, sort of uh, assembly line executions, um, mm -hmm. and these two incidents um, illustrate Los Cetas' use of forced conscription. Because in addition to everything else, uh, Los Cetas were slavers; uh, they enslaved people and forced them to work for the cartel until they died. Um, and um, they also often forced them to commit gruesome acts of violence. They used blood sports um, to to create hitmen. Um, and they also impressed women and girls into sexual slavery. They posed mm -hmm. an extreme threat of sexual violence everywhere they went. Um, for more on, on, on that, uh, check out a uh, piece I wrote for Harper's uh, March 2020 issue uh, called In Harm's Way, 
about the scourge of femicide that exists in the shadow of the yeah. cartels everywhere they go. Uh, that's a separate topic, but also um, one of the worst aspects of, of the rise of, of Los Cetas and, and the, the paramilitarization of, of the conflict in Mexico. Um, but uh, to continue with uh, Lascano, uh, under his leadership, um, Los Cetas establish uh, robust international links in South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, all over the world. They become an international organization. Uh, they also um, diversify into all forms of crime. Uh, in addition to trafficking drugs, they're into kidnapping for ransom, human trafficking, prostitution, organized auto theft, all kinds of extortion. Uh, as we mentioned before, stealing oil and gas uh, from, from Pemex, from the Mexican state, from the Mexican people. Um, but to clarify, it's again, this is the, sort of the standard account as it will set is diversified into all forms yeah. of crime. Um, I would argue actually that, um, you know, it's, it's not that you had, had actual Zetas who are out there sticking up, you know, drivers for their vehicles or, um, or running, um, uh, bordellos or what have you. It's more that they, uh, become a sort of criminal sovereign that is able to, um, dictate who is, who can do all those forms of crime and, and, uh, point like say, let's say a boss of the auto theft guys, a point of the boss of the Huachicoleros, which are the guys who steal oil and gas. Um, and they become more of a, a taxing organization than anything else. Um, mm. And that's because, as I was saying before, trying to emphasize this criminal militia model that doesn't just smuggle drugs, but actually is the one that's in physical control of large swaths of territory, uh, large um, pieces of, of transportation infrastructure. Um, and in that way, uh, uh, they're able to um, charge not only all uh, criminal businesses, but all legal businesses too. Yeah. And become and become a sort of a direct competitor uh, uh, to to the Mexican state, um, and that's what we were talking about before about the alliance, you know, between groups like Los Zetas uh, and these um, and the state governments in Mexico's federal system, and the sort of agglomeration of interests that are, that are usually behind, you know, what we think of as, as the cartels. I mean, that's just, I mean, there's also similarities to to Mexico's revolution and civil war too with with just warring state governments and things like that in, in the cristeros uh you know conflict as well it's that's like i think that's because i i knew about the governors and obviously like these groups just like i mean criminal group organizations in a lot of countries often have state support i think the mafia is a really good example of that you know in in, in certain places that uh they have benefited highly from from state patronage and also able to give a sort of patronage of their own as well. And and like that's like I think that's the thing that's so maddening about this because it, it's 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 like almost that on an industrial scale because you know we, we're talking about the Zetas as sort of the uh, the the progenitors of the this like morphing of the of the conflict between the cartels and 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 the uh, the civil war in, in Mexico or, or really the the people who kicked off the civil war in Mexico in a way, but their tactics were also copied by other cartels too. Like you can't, you can't just, uh, I mean, if, if one guy's, you know, hacking off limbs with chainsaws and stuff, you can't just keep doing the same thing that you're doing. You also have to meet that, that violence with the same, or if not more violence of your own. Yeah, definitely. And you know, the, so Los Zetas, um, our organization, organization in decline now, the current, you know, top of the cartel heap in Mexico is the CJNG, Cartel Jalisco mm -hmm. Nueva Generacion, the new generation Jalisco cartel. And they're even more uh, invested in the sort of paramilitary special forces ethos and aesthetic, uh, you know, your use of uniforms, regalia, berets, body armor, helmets, 
the way that they, they organize themselves. And they're even bigger than Los Setas. Uh, they're more of a coalition of criminal militias that also incorporates actual, you know, battalions of uh, Mexican military and also various um, state or local law enforcement agencies, you know, under their their broad banner. Reportedly, have their own special forces corps, which is an interesting sort of like um, uh, fractalization. I don't know how to put it of the special well, forces. Well, Taliban model. and stuff do too. Yeah. Oh, do they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that that the special forces model has been uh, every single sort of armed group that has an, enough members will have something like that now. Well, they have to now because we started it. So it's yeah, like they got yeah. it. Like you said, they got to meet it. With one comes the other. Yeah, definitely. And the combined result of it um, is that um, the the body count just keeps rising. And mm. it's interesting. We were talking about Mexican history a moment ago. You know. Um, I kind of, there's probably some sort of, um, you know, uh, some sort of um, Aztec or Mayan calendar thing going on here that I, I don't, my thetans aren't clear enough to understand. But <laughs> they, it, it seems to be the crises hit Mexican, uh, hit hit Mexico every hundred years on the dot. So in 1810, there's the War of um, Independence against Spain, 1910 Revolution, and then 2010 is when the sort of abyss opens up in the drug war. And the, mm -hmm. the drug war really becomes a real war. And in Mexico, there's a sense of powerlessness and despair. There's mass outrage at the killings and at the impunity. Um, there's a sense of um, just impotence and grief. And um, for, for a good sense of this uh, mood, this dismal mood in Mexico in this era and continuing to the present, check out a, a 2017 documentary called uh, La Libertad del Diablo, The Devil's Freedom, um, uh, which, um, man... I don't know, have a stiff drink or something before you watch that. But, uh, you know, that, that that's one that I can definitely uh, recommend. We mentioned at the, or you mentioned at the beginning of the show, the lawsuit that the Mexican government has now filed against the American gun manufacturers. What, like, I mean, what are the steps that the government is doing or trying to do um, to take on the cartels? And how has that changed in the past couple, I mean, as the cartels have changed? In Mexico, yeah, there's little that they can do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the new president of Mexico, or new since 2018, Andres yeah. Manuel Lopez Obrador. He, um, you know, I, I was talking about this with Brace uh, the other day. You know, my sense of him is that he is uh, kind of a drug war pessimist. He, he's, I think he's a good president. He's the first good president that Mexico has had in a long time. The the past three presidents of Mexico have been sort of just like neoliberal. Mm -hmm. Guys educated at the Harvard Kennedy School. Oh get, yeah, get glowing profiles in, mm. in the uh, Washington Post or, or wherever when they come yeah. into office. The Acela Corridor, we're big fans of those guys. And then they do an absolutely horrible job uh, and have like you know sub ten percent approval ratings in Mexico when they, when they leave. Um, just a complete revulsion with the system in Mexico led to the election of AMLO um, in two thousand eighteen. And as I said, I just don't know because of the combination of the superior arms and superior um, funding that these organizations have. I think he's kind of a, a realist and, and understands that. I mean, I think his priorities are elsewhere, um, mostly um, um, funding investment that that's going to actually benefit the poor and working class in Mexico and creating programs to alleviate extreme poverty in Mexico. I think that's where most of his attention is. And I think that he would like to go back to the old way of doing things um, before uh, 2010 or so, which is that, you know, the Mexican government kind of turned a blind eye to drug traffickers um, because they're just taking drugs to the United States, so long as they didn't really kill civilians. But I think kind of the cat's out of the bag and 
Um, I wish there was some something I could tell you that there's that they're doing mm-hmm. about the amount of weapons, but in particular the weapon the, the flooding because Mexico had one of the lowest rates of firearms ownership in the world mm-hmm. before yeah. 2004. Famously, yeah. one gun store in all of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been there. Um, it has like a dusty display case where you can see where you can see like the gun. I mean, if you really wanted a gun, you could you could get it. Uh, uh, there are other ways to get one. Um, yes. but yeah, you're right. You're right. You have to. Yeah, there's one gun store in Mexico City run by the army. Um, but the thing about guns is they never go away. Uh, they really don't get old or they get old over a very long lifespan. So I just don't know what they're going to do, what they're going to do about it. I'm sorry to sound a pessimistic note on that, but I just don't know. No, I mean, there's still people using, you know, it's ancient British rifles from like before World War One. you know, in conflicts today throughout the world. I mean, it's if, you know, AR-15s are not as... Uh, durable as ak-47s but uh but certainly if you take care of them they can last, last we need to accelerate time. and have america just make shittier and shittier guns yeah what's that, so that uh we- <laughs> the uh the moonies the, the the heir of the moonies uh cult is a gun manufacturer now and uh so really maybe yes yeah yeah yeah, no yeah i can't remember the name of the, the company but you can you know the guns are in stores i've seen them um so weird they're bad guns too. And so you could, uh, I think you could just line up some Taurus and stuff like that. You start only selling really shitty guns <laughs> in, in Southern Texas. You've also mentioned that like when you're down there, you've seen, you know, what looks almost like, like armored vehicles and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, obviously craft produced, uh, armored personnel carriers are pretty common throughout conflicts in, in the world, but you don't usually, usually see them driving down the streets of, uh, uh, you know, of countries with at least a semi-functioning government. Yeah, actually, you know, um, about three months ago in May, I had the chance to visit a little town called Miguel Aleman, which is, um, so the Losetas still exist, um, although greatly reduced from their peak strength. And they're still at war with the Gulf Cartel. And the front line between them is this little town called Miguel Aleman, um, which is a notorious little cartel redoubt. Uh, scarred by 20 years of gangland warfare, truly a no-go zone, even by the standards uh, of northern Mexico. Um, but I had a chance to go uh, during the daytime with a with a trusted colleague who's a um, who's a uh, TV reporter for a Spanish language channel in the in the valley, um, who has good contacts uh, and real kind of like sm- smiley black slavy guy um, who puts everyone at ease in his presence and so forth. Anyway, I felt confident going over with him. But the day before we left, we um, we called a reporter in Reynosa for a situation report around Miguel Aleman. He told us that he had seen multiple caravans or convoys of what he called uh, vehiculos monstruos y blindados, uh, and by which he was referring to this type of uh, homemade armored vehicle, which Mexicans call uh, monstros, monsters. And uh, Brace, I know you know what these things are because there's a freaking yes. centerfold of you in Rolling Stone magazine, <laughs> yeah, which I actually, yeah, keep, yeah. I actually keep it pinned up in my bedroom, dude. Uh, oh. But uh, no, just kidding. But uh, <laughs> it's you. It's you in the in the uh, interior of one of these things. Um, oh, yes. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Tell the. I know exactly about. what you're talking about. I mean, these things are. I don't know how I mean, the, the the Kurds are. I mean, as as evidenced by their Zagros uh, sort of homemade fifty cal. I think they're fifty cal sniper rifles. They're actually pretty good at making a uh, craft. I, well, they're called craft weapons, but I don't know what you technicals, which are like you know um, truck mounted, you know heavy machine guns or any aircraft guns. They're also pretty good at making homemade armored uh, armored personnel carriers. 
And, you know, some of these things that, that, you know, there was two in the group that I was in. One was a, called the Panzer, which, you know, had, it was basically like a, a copy of a Russian BMP, like a, you know, had like the turret from one. And then there was the Dupishk, which was a scorp was called, you know, translate to Scorpion, which was literally just a pickup truck covered in concrete and metal. And that actually, uh, t- took a, a RPG, uh, round and sort of shrugged it off. Like, you know, was, was able to withstand mm. it. But, uh, but I mean, these things have been replicated. I mean, there, there's also famously, you know, these have been used since the advent of armored vehicles. They were, they were very um, famously used in the Spanish Civil War by the, the Republicans um, uh, on that side. for Because, la- you know, you don't usually have a lot of armored vehicles. But, you know, if, if one of these things goes up against, you, you know, you have like a, a basically a large armored truck or even a bus or whatever with, you know, either weapons ports out the side or maybe even like a turret or something like that. If you're just on foot, you're mm-hmm. fucked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there, you know, it's like a mobile gun emplacement. Yeah, definitely. They're very effective. You know, I uh, when when I was in uh, when in 2004, when I was a private in in the in the army, and we were fixing to cross over in, into Iraq from Syria, my unit, we didn't have any armored uh, vehicles at all, and so um, and this insurgency had already begun by that time, and they were targeting um, they were targeting non combat reserve units like the the type I was in. And, uh, and, uh, we knew this. And so we, um, there was like a pile of scrap metal that we found. And because we had these kind of tools, like acetylene torches for cutting, you could bolt, um, pieces of metal onto the side of the truck. You could create, you could like weld these hasps to hang it over the sides. And so we created, we, we called it if, if I won't go into detail about this, but you know, folks Google, uh, hillbilly armor, or, or we also called it uh, farmer armor. Uh, you create, <laughs> like you create these monstrosities, um, because they look totally dystopian, like Mad Max style. Yeah. But, but yeah, as you're saying, they, they help. I know, I know for a fact that two guys in my units had their life saved, uh, by these things. Cause they were hunkered down beh- behind these, this sort of door shield that they had built. Um, uh, in other cases, guys in my unit, it didn't, it didn't protect them. Uh, they lost their lives even though they were in these vehicles, but it's better than nothing. Um, and, mm. uh, definitely it's, it, they, they cut a very, um, intimidating, intimidating appearance. And this goes back to what we were talking about before about the sort of discourse between Los Cetas and the war in Iraq, because those, those sort of Mad Max convoys of the sort that I'm describing were all over the media and so forth. Los Cetas definitely saw that. Uh, and they were the first to, to employ these type of vehicles, which they usually make out of um, either a, an 18 wheeler uh, tractor, the tractor cab of an 18 wheeler, or they'll make it out of a dump truck or some other, other heavy truck like that. And they'll just completely clad the exterior in plates of metal, and that's that en- enables them to sort of penetrate into the middle of a, of a gun battle uh, and lay down machine gun fire. And so the trip that I'm talking about just three months ago, if you can imagine, I mean, this is this is just a you know I live in Austin, it's a four hour drive down there, and just right on the other side of the border, you have multiple convoys of these things. So a convoy, he used the word caravana. Uh, so that means like at a minimum three, I'm assuming. And he said multiple, um, convoys. So we're talking about at least six of these things just clashing with one another, you know, on the outskirts of this little town on the other side of Texas and just straight unloading, you know, with with machine guns. Um, I think people get Mexico wrong in two ways. One is that they don't, they really underestimate the degree of violence and just open warfare that's right Mm -hmm. on the other side of the border. And then two, they exaggerate the amount of, of violence that exists in the interior of Mexico, um, where it's really not that severe, nothing of this sort at all. Uh, and so um, it's kind of distorted in, bo- in both respects. It, the, the violence is, is, is very localized. Um, but 
um, you know, I can tell you more if you like about the town of Miguel Aleman because there's really no reporting from inside places um, like this. We crossed over and um, like I said, it was in the middle of the daytime and I saw something I'd never seen before in all my, all my travels in Mexico, uh, which was uh, the streets and sidewalks virtually deserted of people. And then the plaza of the town uh, completely empty on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. The sun is shining. There's not a single person sitting on any of the benches. Um, the only people we saw out and about were the three um, Alcones or Falcons that were following us around the whole time. As soon as we stepped off the bridge, uh, one of them, you know, followed us at a distance, blatantly filming us with his phone the entire time. He never took his eyes off the screen of the phone. Um, and this will illustrate again the point I'm trying to make about the cartel's use of surveillance, which is really the cornerstone of their control, is their ability to put eyes and ears on absolutely everything. Um, and you know, um, when we left that town, we didn't stay. We didn't stay very long, um, and we didn't see too much. I mean, some buildings were still gutted from fire, um, and but that that was about it. The, the most impressive thing was the, the lack of people. When we left. Uh, my colleague, uh, whose name is Enrique Lerma, he got a call from the um, the uh, top cop in Tamaulipas, the Secretary of Public Security, uh, immediately after we came back. And this goes to show how uh, quickly and how efficiently the, the cartel reports up the chain of command, because we hadn't we hadn't showed IDs, we hadn't showed passports, we hadn't really talked to anybody. Um, so they either recognized uh, uh, Enrique, or they had MC catchers because we were making phone calls. But in, in either case, as soon as we set, as soon as we uh, uh, came back, or at least within the hour, this guy called uh, uh, Enrique and says to him, "Hey, next time um, you go to Miguel Aleman, tell me first, and I'll send Gopez to protect you." And Gopez is a special forces police unit in Tamaulipas, mm-hmm. and um, I want to pause for a minute and dwell on them because, for, well, Enrique took this as a veiled threat because uh, so Gopez is um, very much like Gaffe. Um, and this will illustrate how this cycle continues. Gopez is a special forces police unit that answers directly to the governor of Tamaulipas that has the best armored vehicles, the best equipment. Um, they have been trained by the State Department. They've been trained by Texas uh, police, Texas State Police, uh, DPS. Uh, also, Cameron County law enforcement. Other law enforcement agencies have trained Gopez. Gopez stands for... Um, Grupo de Operaciones Especiales, Special Operations Group. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just the same thing in every respect, just another iteration of it. Um, because, you know, the thinking behind it is we'll, we'll train up these special forces units. And, and because as a result of their, um, uh, their enhanced capabilities, uh, they'll be able to simply crush the cartels by force. But what you see in reality is that they simply become the worst actors of all. Uh, because this Gopez unit that I'm talking about, that that, that uh, this guy offered to, you know, to quote unquote protect us, um, in January of 2021, committed a massacre in Camargo, yes. which is which is uh, just a stone's throw from from Miguel Aleman, in which they killed uh, 14 people, most of them Guatemalan migrants, totally unarmed, completely innocent people, um, and no one knows why they did this. Uh, but uh, I interviewed a migrant smuggler who told me that they, it was his load of people um, and that Gopez had kidnapped them and that uh, had demanded a bribe, which he considered excessive, this migrant smuggler, uh, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was $20,000, which he refused to, refused to pay, not realizing that, um, that this unit, that the Gopez would simply lay waste to these people 
uh, which he which he said or claimed to be appalled by. Um, and keep in mind, this is a guy. This migrant smuggler pertains to the Gulf Cartel, so you know he's not a faint of heart type of person. But he was really, I think, um, or claimed to be uh, really shocked by this by this act because it's not it's not uncommon for for organized crime groups to kidnap uh, groups of migrants, and it's also not uncommon for for some of those people to die. Uh, or to be killed by the cartel, but this was really exceptional. Yeah. You know, we talked about the San Fernando massacres earlier. Um, granted, it's not on that scale, but it's the same type of atrocity. Um, and again, this the fact that this unit Gopez was that committed it is not in question. In fact, a number of them have been arrested. And the fact that Gopez was trained by the United States also not in question. Um, it definitely happened. You can just see just looking at pictures of the unit. Um, that uh, they have all this amazing equipment and yeah. they, can, they can go anywhere in the state, fuck up anybody. No one can stand against them. They can penetrate any, t- any terrain. And so this, this massacre that they recently committed, um, it, it strongly suggests that you, we have another one of these units on our hands um, that it, following in the mold of Gaffe, you know, turns, goes rogue and turns into the, into the worst uh, actors in, in the drug game. It's funny because you keep saying going rogue. And I wonder, I mean, this is kind of a point we brought up in the episode about JSOC is that it's almost not going rogue, right? Because these units, the way they're designed, like from instantiation, and like, this is all throughout their ethos is that they're outside of any traditional kind of or historical hierarchy, whether that is. And so like for them to go rogue is almost like fulfilling even the promise of their own design. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, a cynic, you know, could look at it and say that, you know, these, these units just make the drug war worse and there's even more call for, um, additional inter- intervention. Um, yeah. and right. after 20 years or, or in the case of the drug war, um, 40, 50 years, you have to start wondering at what point do you ascribe intentionality to mm-hmm. this? At what point do you start to say, all right, the U S must just be trying to create, um, these terroristic units, but, I don't know if I would go that far. I think it's more a result of just sort of the fact that the federal government thrives on permanent war and the fact that there's no incentive uh, for them to stop making the same mistakes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple things that also that, that come to mind too, when we're talking about this uh, and, and a couple questions I also had was, was, well, one, I mean, obviously a large part of, I mean, the cartels are not just drug cartels, you know, like we, you, that, that, that's very clear. It's not, they're not like if, if, if the supply of drugs was cut off to America tomorrow, or if Americans stopped, um, you know, consuming so much heroin and Coke, et cetera, tomorrow, like, it's not like they would be broke or anything. I mean, they, 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 like you said, they control large swaths of territory. They've and diversified. They diversified yeah. their assets here, but <laughs> it is no, like, you know, I, it, it's funny because you hear people talk about this with climate stuff a lot where it's like, well, you know, most of the the climate change is caused by, you know, these 70% of it is caused by these corporations. And so there's no use in thinking about your own consumption patterns with 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 uh, anything related to the environment or anything like that. Like, oh, just, you know, it's it's all this person's fault. And so you, you sort of remove any agency for yourself, which, okay, yes, I, you know, obviously it is almost entirely the fault of large corporations, but there's also a lot of demand. And I guarantee a lot of those people uh, who, who say this sort of thing would, would also get pretty pissed off if, uh, if, if some of these companies uh, maybe cut some of the products that, that contribute so much to the, uh, to the destruction of the environment. And I think the same thing is with drugs is that 
people people sort of you know you, they might talk about the drug war in in Colombia and you know massacres in Colombia etc all the, all these things and in uh, Mexico um, but you know there is a huge demand for dope in the United States and as somebody who once demanded as much dope as possible I can attest to that and uh, it, it, that that's that that can't be discounted here I don't think I mean it, there's is is people want their fucking cocaine. And people want their fucking heroin, um, and then and, and they want their fentanyl um, because they, that's they, it's it's now easy enough to synthesize that they can do it, uh, you know, in, in Mexico and stuff like that. They don't just have to grow opium poppies. In fact, uh, a lot of cartels have begun growing less opium poppies, mm-hmm. and in fact, manufacturing more fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's I mean, there's not even really a question here, but it, I, I mean, kind of, but it, it, you know, it's it's there is. It seems like there's just such an insane, intense demand from uh, from Americans uh, and and you know, presumably Canadians as well uh, for for dope. That like, well, of course these cartels are going to have a bunch of money because mm-hmm. you, you keep giving it to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some um, so some will say that you know the worst thing about the the paramilitarization of the of the drug war in Mexico is that you now now no longer have this nuclear option of legalizing drugs in the U.S. to put it into it. Um, which, and there's a lot of truth to that, um, in the sense that we've been talking about their, their seizure, not just of, um, drug trafficking routes, but, you know, it, and it's not even oil and gas and these other, and these other things that you might more or less naturally, uh, um, think about in connection with smuggling or organized crime, but, you know, they take control of forests, uh, you know, croplands, avocados, all the, there's like an avocado cartel. Yeah. Um, they take control of ports, uh, and are in control of fisheries, mm-hmm. but, I honestly think that if you were to, to do that nuclear option and uh, legalize and medicalize all drugs, um, that it would probably have an effect in, in Mexico. I think that, that since it's their largest revenue stream, you just can't discount the fact that tens of billions of dollars that would, yeah. be, would be just disappear overnight because no one would need them. I mean, no one would buy heroin from Mexico if you could get it uh, with a prescription from a doctor in the U.S., um, well, those prescription, they might buy it from Mexico. <laughs> well, <New laughs> well Zealand, they, they, they grow it all in New Zealand, actually. It's like, that's where like the, for some reason, all, like almost all opium poppies, uh, used by the, uh, by American drug manufacturers come from yeah. New Zealand. Uh, excuse me, from, from Tasmania in Australia. So it's oh, actually gosh. the Australia. Yeah, I know. And in fact, Tasmania used to have a really diversified, like, uh, you know, like, uh, uh agricultural base. No more. Now you are just growing dope. There's, a, you know, the many yeah. problems of monoculture. It is, it is the mecca for guys. I mean, I know guys who make pilgrimages out there two, three times. I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, the the other question I had was, I mean, I think people think of Mexico as like, uh, you know, a, a failed state essentially, like a, a place where that you know lawlessness and anarchy reigns, and that. It, it, you know whether they ascribe that to you know sort of racist beliefs about uh, you know people in Mexico or whether they ascribe that to NAFTA or whatever like that that is the general sense of it. I, I, I think people may not fully grasp that Mexico was first of all not always this way. I think a lot of people do understand that NAFTA had a really really fucked up effect on Mexico, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. destroyed a Mexican middle class, like it mm-hmm. really destroyed a lot of um, small farmers. I mean, it, Small farmers, yeah. I mean, it, it, it fucked the country up really, really badly. Um, but, but that's like, what? What is the? My, my, my real question here is like, how? How is this for people who live in Mexico? Like, just regular everyday people in Mexico who, who within the last twenty years now live in like a war zone, in certain parts of the country, of course, not not the whole thing. 
Uh, uh, words fail me. Um, as wor- as bad as you can possibly imagine. Um, yeah. They live in, as if kidnapped. Um, there, there is, like I said before, a sense of despair at the impunity and um, the in- seemingly inability to change things. And you know, the the homicide crisis has gotten even worse since 2019, you know, we were talking earlier about the peak that occurred around 2010 to 2012 with a sort of shock advance of Los Zetas across the country. Um, but things are even worse now uh, with the CJ and G uh, at the top. Um, and I don't know what to tell you. I mean, people just kind of live their lives and kind of go on with it. Um, they recognize that um, anyone can be killed at any time, that there's no rhyme or reason to it, and that there's there's basically nothing that they can do about it. Um, it's, it's a really bad situation. Um, and we don't, we don't report on it enough. I I think Uh, there's not enough reporting on it. Uh, I don't know if it's really my place to say, but I feel like, you know, there are a lot of people. So the, in the United States, there's a lot of Spanish speakers. There's like, Mm -hmm. you know, a hundred thousand Spanish speakers or a hundred million Spanish speakers, something like that in the United States. And a lot of journalists speak Spanish too. And a lot of them are either first generation uh, or second generation Mexicans. And I feel like there's a sense of, and the, the people that tend to, to go into journalism from that ambit, I think are more like upper class um, types uh, from, from Mexico. And I think there's a real sense of chagrin around it as what I'm mm-hmm. trying to articulate and mm-hmm. like not a lot of discussion about it. Um, uh, they don't want to talk about the drug war in Mexico. And there's also a sense that there's a split in Mexico where, you know, um, so like, like my girlfriend, she, she's, she's a writer. She lives in Mexico city. And, um, she, you know, I'll ask her about something, you know, say something about Caro Quintero, for example, and she, she doesn't even know who that is and doesn't really want to know, um, because they sort of associate all of this sort of like low class Northern Mexico, uh, and don't want to have anything to do with it and don't talk about it. I don't, I don't know. This, this is kind of a digression that, I feel no, far, no. far afield of my expertise here. Um, but you have everything, despair, outrage, embarrassment, chagrin, uh, and I think above all, just grief. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it, I think it's similar here in a way and that there's like a whole, you know, there's, there's parts of America that are pretty, you know, pretty fucked up. I mean, obviously there isn't a low grade civil, as much as some people would like there to be, there is not a low grade civil war or even <laughs> any kind of grade civil war going on in the country. Um, uh, but you know, there are, there are parts of America that are just like totally ravaged and, and, mm-hmm. and, and destroyed uh, often, you know, funnily enough, also because of NAFTA and deindustrialization, um, and, uh, you know, and the demise of a lot of the agricultural industry or, or at least the, mon- you know, the monopolization of that industry. Um, and you know you often find well, a lot of our journalists too come from uh, from backgrounds where they would be a little embarrassed of that or or or, or uh, you know maybe at the best you know patronizing towards mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's I think it, there there are definitely some similarities in that in that sense. Yeah, totally. And if you talk to officials in the Mexican government, they'll be quick to say that all these people that are killing each other are all criminals. It's just criminals who are dying. But sadly, that's not true. Um, and a lot of the people that are dying, I think we touched on this earlier. Our last time we were talking about ISIS, like. The degree to which the cartels use conscription, child soldiers, uh, and in particular as hitmen, um, yeah. really underreported aspect of it. A lot of these people um, get drawn into this and, you know, the, 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 the cartel kidnaps people, uh, they take them off the street, um, and they literally just, like I said before, they enslave them and force them to work for the cartel until they die. Um, so it's not true that it's just criminals that are, that are dying in Mexico. 
done a lot of on the ground reporting. And in fact, you've even you've spoken to an actual uh, member of Lasetas. Yeah, one time I did. Um, this guy, I was also researching the oil and gas, um, the oil and gas uh, theft by Losetas, and um, through a trusted intermediary, I was able to to mm-hmm. make contact with a guy who was active in Losetas around that time, mm-hmm. and um, we set up the interview, and we went there, and I was prepared to to go to the other side, uh, to go to out of Mexico to meet this guy at his house, uh, and I found out as we were leaving out that um, in fact he lived on the Texas side. Mm. Uh, of the border. So just, just put a pin in that. Um, and so we show up to his house and his whole family is there. Uh, I, if I recall, it was four, like four women, his wife, I probably his mother and a couple daughters. Also there was like four kids. Uh, there's infant child there. And there was like mm-hmm. teenage boys in the front yard, throwing a football around, standing in the bed of this pickup truck. Um, these long ass antennas, keep kind of keeping an eye on the block. So he had his whole family there in this house in Texas um, and we went in to interview him and, um, he was like a really tall kind of, uh, fat guy, very ogre like in appearance. I would describe him. I remember distinctly that he had, um, dirty fingernails. And the first thing he did was to go and, and show us his uniforms because we were gonna take some photos and uh. he, he went and put on, um, the, uh, uniform of La Marina, the Mexican Marine Corps. And he also had, uh, uniforms of, uh, El Ejército. Uh, Los Federales, Estatales, Municipales, um, all of the law enforcement, state, uh, federal, judicial law enforcement, and the army. He had uniforms of all of these security forces and IDs uh, to go with each of these disguises. Jesus. So I put, uh, I mentioned that to again emphasize, you know, the the, the role of disguises, uh, surveillance, intelligence gathering that these uh, U.S. trained uh, units or their progenitors uh, will will tend to display. Um, he also had some weapons. He had an AR style uh, assault rifle and uh, a Glock nine. And um, he brought out his, his weapons uh, and set them on the table and showed And we took some photos and we started the interview and um, he, he was a second generation Zeta. He had joined in the late two thousands and he um, was not military. Uh, so most of the second generations that the, the Gaffe guys were quickly uh, uh, wiped out. Los Cano, yeah. I think, was the last survivor. He died in 2012, reportedly, although we could talk about whether or not he actually died. Um, but so this guy was a, a judicial police officer and worked for a Governor Tomas Yarrington of Tamaulipas, who was a seriously bad dude. Uh, just everything I was talking about before about the state governments um, and their standing behind these cartels. So this guy is an assassin. Uh, as a judicial police officer, he's like an assassin for uh, Governor Yarrington in that connection sort of is absorbed into uh, Losetas. And he told me that he had committed 36 murders all at the behest of Yarrington. He said that he had killed five journalists and that in one case he, he had killed a pregnant woman who uh, was the wife of a, a doctor who owed uh, Yarrington money. Um, and as a Sicario, his work uh, was pure killing. You know, he doesn't touch drugs. Um, he, his only job is to stand by for orders to kill, you know, this or that person. And he was kept supplied, um, with, uh, three things, money, whiskey, and cocaine, he said. Uh, and then when it was time to do a job, he would get a text message to his phone and it would be a person's name, their photo, and, uh, either their location or it'd be his job to find the person. Uh, and he and his accomplices would pick, pick up the target, uh, um, and take them to a, a rural ranch or a safe house. And in some cases would inter- interrogate them. Some cases would torture them. 
and, it's, and in some cases uh, would simply execute them. They would dispose of the bodies um, in a mass grave. So, you know, like I said, the interview had more to do with um, drug smuggling um, than it, or excuse me, with a theft of oil and gas than, it, than with anything else. Um, and that was what we mostly talked about. Um, and it was very illuminating from that perspective. But the point of all this is that when I left this interview, I was thinking to myself, how the hell is this guy living in Texas? Uh, this makes no sense at all because um, he is one degree of separation from Heriberto Lascano, who is a, a major international criminal who has a $10 million reward on his head, um, who, you know, the, the, the narco-terrorist label that the State Department applies, um, you know, they take that pretty seriously by all standards. He's a high-value target for the U.S. government. And he also works for Tomas Yarrington. Um, who was indicted in 2012, fled to Italy, spends like five years on the lam, finally extradited to Texas, and um, I think recently pled guilty and is now sitting in federal prison. So how the hell is this guy living in Texas after committing all these murders uh, and being so close to these other dudes? And very quickly, an explanation occurred to me um, that would also explain why he felt comfortable uh, talking to a journalist, um, which is that he was probably a confidential informant. Uh, mm -hmm. protected uh, DEA asset. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that because Lascano supposedly killed in 2012 in a shootout with the Mexican Marines at a baseball game, but Losetas immediately um, swarm the funeral parlor and take away his body. Uh, there's a lot of discrepancies around um, the body itself. The records are ambiguous. You know, the dead man was 5'11", but all along we've been led to believe that, uh, that uh, Lascano was 5'3". The photos are hard to judge. And the entire time I've been reporting in the Valley and in Northern Mexico, people have told me, or let's just say word on the street is that Lascano didn't die um, and that he's still alive and that he lives in, in Texas too. Um, and no one has told me that Lascano uh, is, again, this is the most significant figure in Los Cetas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he, no one has told me that he's a protected asset. However, if it's true that he, that he survived and is living in Texas, um, that would be really the the only way that it's possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll be real. If if that was me, I would probably move further north in Texas. Like maybe, <laughs> like maybe I, I'd hit up like Oklahoma, Oklahoma at least, at least Oklahoma, uh, probably higher than that. In fact, maybe I'd even just go to Long Island mm. Um, mm. because that would be a little too close to where everybody else was. I mean, Texas is a big state, but mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the thing too, is with a lot of this stuff, I mean, that's, and that's a whole other subject to get into, but like, you know, the DEA has yeah, informants <laughs> in every, obviously in every single one of these organizations. And like, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're every time, you know, a big wig gets arrested, obviously there's rumors too about them being, being an informant as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, that, that, that general that we were talking about the other day who gets, I mean, I don't think, I don't, I, who knows what the fuck was going on that with yeah. that, but you know, Mexican general arrested by the U S and then, mm -hmm. uh, before his trial of, allowed to go back to Mexico, uh, it is just, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there is a, there is a whole web of shit that, that we aren't really sort of privy to, but, but you can, you can sort of make educated guesses, uh, you know, just, uh, basically using using some pretty basic facts uh, you know about about some of these people yeah yeah it's very strange i don't think you'll ever sort those out the arrest you're talking about uh, general cienfuegos god knows what kind of um disgusting deals were behind that back and forth uh never seen that happen before 
There's another one, a case like that, Hinar Garcia Luna, a former top cop in Mexico, uh, who was recently arrested um, when he flew to the U.S. I don't know that we'll ever get the history behind all of this, um, mm-hmm. but suffice it to say, like, yeah, these and it's not just the DEA; it's not the only agency um, yeah. that has that has its fingers all over all over Mexico. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to sort out what their role is, but definitely, um, you know, I wouldn't call them the puppet masters or anything like that, but um, they're moving pieces around and they're making deals at a high level. And, you know, Chapo Guzman, um, you know, it's interesting to me that he's not allowed to say anything at his trial. I mean, they bring yes. him out like freaking Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, um, it's incredible, actually. And surprisingly little press coverage as well on a lot of this. Yeah, uh, you know, he, I know the one time they allowed him to speak under highly controlled conditions, he said something to the effect of, you know, I want to say that the government of the United States is just as corrupt as the government of Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and most likely if they did allow him to speak, he would implicate first and foremost Enrique Peña Nieto, the former president of Mexico, Absolutely. other extremely high level Mexican politicians who are sponsored and have close links to the U.S., possibly even, um, you know, um, important DEA officials and other important officials. Um, but they're, they're not going to let him talk about any of that. The yeah, shit that no dude way. must know. Yeah. Well, if you if you talk to you were talking before about the supposed like the perhaps faked death of Las Cano, yeah. um, but if you talk to just like people on the, the Mexican man or woman on the street, I would say like mainstream opinion is that the El Chapo that's in prison is not the real Joaquin Guzman Luera. I've heard that, that as well. Yeah, that's in fact, that, that's just like what most people think. It's like mm-hmm. mainstream. What's the what's the what's the what's the thinking behind it? It's just like it's like a body double. Yeah, I mean, this is a trope that you'll see in in all sorts of um, you know cultural representations of the drug war from a Mexican mm-hmm. perspective. Whether it's the whether it's movies or telenovelas or music, that the slain kingpin turns out to actually be a body double, or yeah. or the real boss all along was the the janitor or the guy serving coffee. That was the real boss. Yeah, we're today. <laughs> it's like some mm-hmm. Kaiser Sose Kaiser sit. Mr. Redfoot knew nothing. Using pawns. Big, fat guy. I mean, like orca fat. It was a body double. The janitor. Kobayashi. So, I've never seen again. So back when I was picking beans in Guatemala, we used to make fresh coffee. Guy serving coffee. But he was a good man. I know he was good. Yeah, we sit in. Kaiser Sozik. Jester Max. Tell me every last detail. Strangest thing. How do you shoot the devil in the back? I can't look you in the eyes. Communism is a YouTuber. Herb. Herb. About a pretzel, man. What's your story? There was a lawyer. We need to know the truth. I am Mr. Kobayashi. 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 There's going to be so much bumping and grinding on the Khashoggi. I work for Kaiser Sozik. I'm going to with y'all. I'm a gay loser. Yeah, totally. Hillary Clinton's brother. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of people that some people thought Epstein, I think was Hillary Clinton's uh, brother. The, oh, the yeah, body yeah, yeah. that was wheeled out. Um, oh, I'll be damned. Well, uh, Seth, it was a, a pleasure to have you on. Actually, it was, I'll be real with you. I'm, it was really depressing to have you on, <laughs> but it was a pleasure to talk. Well, actually, it was also You know depressing. what he's trying to say. I, I'm glad to see you. <laughs> I'm glad to see y'all as well. Thank you so much for having me on. And I actually did want to say something to have you say something. So that book you mentioned about the CIA in Mexico, you and I were talking about that. You're trying to find that book, right? Yeah. There's one copy on Amazon. It's like for 400 bucks. Maybe I'll just spring for it. But I saw it once in a, in a bookstore in Mexico City and just foolishly failed to buy it. But Manuel Bundia, man, oh, we just don't have time to talk about him. But I will say that he created his, he was a journalist who was obsessed with the CIA back in the day, um, the Mexico, Mexico was a rat's nest of intelligence yes. services all over the world. 
and he was obsessed with the CIA's role and would publish the names of um, top CIA officials in his column, which was the most widely read column in Mexico, and encourage his readers to like call the CIA station chief on his phone. <laughs> he, he was like a receptacle for de- for for leaks of the sort, and he he had his own journalistic agency, which he called uh, La Mia, the uh, the Mexican intelligence agency. Um, and in Spanish, La Mia means mine. It's like a play on, on CIA. He was a very colorful guy, always went around with like a skeevy pencil mustache, carrying a pistol. Oh, I um, like that. And like I said, he became the first Mexican journalist of, of tragically what would be very many um, to be just assassinated in the streets. Uh, and like I said, no one knows who uh, was, was behind that. Well, well, I, I was I was trying to prompt you to say that if listeners, if you have that book and yeah. are willing to part with it, uh, let us let us know because I know you've been looking for that for a while. Yeah, definitely. Well, all right, uh, we will. I'm sure have you on again to talk about something that will also make me want to kill myself. <laughs> um, but great to so. see you, Seth. Great to see y'all. Thank you so much. All right, thank y'all. everyone here's the thing mm-hmm. actually i don't want to tell them never mind okay yeah let's keep it between us i'm gonna keep it a secret mm-hmm. they don't need to know they don't three need to know can, i was gonna tell them to something but now now you're all just gonna end this show being like what the hell what was that gonna what were you gonna tell me let's Wait. make triple eye contact right now guys can we make triple eye contact yeah 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 all right i can do all right never tell them we're never gonna tell okay, them. Okay, never tell them. Wait, put your pinkies up. Okay. One, two, three. Pinky swear. Uh-huh. Boom. That's and look. Um Ooh, so, cross my fingers. Oh fucking hell. You know, that actually is Just legally kidding. admissible. People don't want you to know that. Uh, anyways, that uh that interview was depressing. Um, but I uh, I have nothing else to say besides that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's a great guest. We got to have him back. We always like having him on the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we will link to the pieces below. I got to say, he kind of glossed over this part at the beginning, uh, mm. talking about the 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 gun uh, trafficking to Mexico. First of all, it's insane that there are no gun trafficking laws. Yeah. Uh, but also, the guns being talked about, or uh, some of the guns being talked about in that article, are mini guns. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Liz, you know, due to the female type nature of your gender, um, I I don't expect you to know necessarily what a minigun is, but miniguns are like basically a bunch of different barrels in a circle that uh, spin around really fast and shoot bullets uh, faster than basically anything else. So like thousands of rounds per second. I mean, it's like a, it's like a super machine gun. Um, but anyways, they are not common weapons they're usually mounted on the side of fucking helicopters and all that stuff mm. and the crux of this article was that not only were they smuggling miniguns into mexico like I mean, it was the actual company the former head of one of the companies the only two companies in america that makes these miniguns was uh was actually helping them do it it's just i mean that's an incredible mm. amount of firepower right there uh but uh but yeah so um Nobody getting any bright ideas about gun smuggling from that because <laughs> you're too stupid and you'll get caught. And no. uh, plus, unless uh, it's, it's the federal informants listening, in mm-hmm. which case you're probably doing a good job. Statistically, we probably do have an informant listening. Informant, like, yeah, but also just straight up agents. 
Yeah. Well, no. And, you know, to those listeners, I say hello. Hello. Uh, also, the DMs are open. And again, always willing to talk about Liz specifically. And you know what else I say to them? Now it's time to say goodbye. I'm Liz. My name is the other guy from Fight Club, uh, Edward Norton. What was it? Oh, he didn't have a name, did he? That was I the whole thing. I just don't remember. I haven't seen that movie it was since like I was. Split person. God, just... Jack. 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 Wow. Wow. Young Chomsky outing himself by knowing the less famous name of the. Uh... Oh, wait, mm. is that a is that a Fight Club poster behind you? <laughs> Next to a Pulp Fiction poster and a couch? That's what I call the global average of posters. Mm hmm. Uh, of course, that is Young Chomsky, the world's number one Fight Club fan. In fact, he has told me many times that actually he kind of thinks of himself like a like a less mean Tyler Durden. Uh, and but unfortunately, he actually doesn't use soap. He smells really bad. Uh, also, music by Young Chomsky, so people can stop fucking asking us that. Man, they really. Want, we said it last time explicitly. Still, people and they're like, "Oh yeah, I didn't listen to the more whole than ever." It's like, listen to the whole episode. And if More you're not, than, don't ask any questions. Questions yeah, come after the episode. After yeah. the episode's finished. Then you can raise your hand. Up Until then, keep your trap shut. Yes. As Tyler Durden once said, no investigation, no right to speak. We are true and on. Liz, play us out. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein.